ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. We have a liftoff. It is Coronacast, the show all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor coming to you from Jagera and Turrbal Land. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan coming to you from Gadigal Land, part of the Eora Nation. So Norman, we have talked a lot about long COVID, but I want to talk about it a little bit more today. One, because it is something that genuinely scares me and many of the people that listen to this show that, you know, you can have a disease that then kind of has a long tail that for many people is really debilitating. And part of the fact that it's part of the reason why it's scary is because it's so unpredictable. We don't really know why some people get it. We don't know how long it lasts for. We're getting closer to knowing how to treat it, but we're still not very good at that. But at least one of those questions we're getting a bit closer to understanding, which is the why or how some people get it more than others. There's been a new a new study that's looking at whether there are biomarkers, whether there are signals in people's biology that indicates whether they're more likely to get long COVID. And who would have thought that the biomarker might be hand grip strength. In other words, oh. how tightly you can, you know, in other words, there, there, are me- there are physical ways to measure your hand grip strength. It's often done in older people to assess their general muscle strength. There is a relationship, just not in COVID, with um, longevity and healthy longevity and people with strong hand grip strength. So it's a well-recognised measure. So essentially these were 106 people, so it's not a huge study, Measure often a lot of these studies are points in time where you just look at people point in time to see what's going on rather than necessarily following them through. This was a study almost two years long, following 106 people three times over that two years, looking at all sorts of um, measures you know, their clinical measures that's hand grip strength, how well you're doing physically and sorry, and mentally and, and so on, and laboratory markers in the immune system. And so looking at predicting, as you implied, who's going to go on for longer than others uh, and, and have a, a more severe, longer um, pathway, if you like, with the, the symptoms after COVID infection. And look, what they did was they actually used criteria for diagnosing chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgia encephalomyelitis. So these were people who had post-COVID syndrome. They, they had long COVID, but they wanted to see what the overlap was with ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. In other words, would giving the diagnostic criteria of ME help to segregate people who are going to go on longer than others. And what they found in brief was that when you looked at people who fulfilled the criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome, they indeed did progress longer with their symptoms than people who did not. In other words, everybody had prolonged symptoms, but those who seemed to drift into the syndrome attached to myalgia encephalomyelitis went on longer. And in fact, it was about half the sample. Now, when they looked at the blood tests here, um, the uh, in both groups, the post-COVID group and the post-COVID group who seemed to meet the criteria for ME, their inflammatory biomarkers decreased. In other words, the signs of inflammation in their body decreased in both groups as time went on. But in people who had post-COVID syndrome who fulfilled the criteria for ME as well, they had an additional uh, immune abnormality, which was that their anti-nuclear antibodies remained elevated. And those are often a sign of autoimmune disease, actually. 
And the people who with POTS, and there's a lot of publicity being given to POTS at the moment. You better remind us what that is, yeah. Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. In other words, when you stand up from a lying or sitting position, you feel really unwell and your, your pulse starts racing and you feel your heart beating in your chest. So that was also uh, exclusively in people who had the combined diagnosis. But the hand grip strength stood out as that that was lower in people who had the combined diagnosis. I know you're talking about a lot of different things there and like some of them sound very, very medical, but it seems to me grip strength is something that you can modify. Like if you do more strength training, your grip strength gets stronger. It's one of the ways to see whether you, your strength training's working. So does that mean that your risk of getting long COVID is modifiable as well? Very good question. And there's a lot of debate about just what hand grip strength measures. So for example, um, there's known that if you have strong muscles, you're going to survive longer in better health. And they're saying that hand grip strength is a good measure of that. But if you're not exercising your arms, how does your hand grip strength actually change? Because you might actually just be running on a treadmill and getting fitter. So it's a, it's a confusing measure. But potentially, um, the argument that you're making is, or you seem to be making, is, is, is interesting, which is if you actually trained your muscles and got stronger, would in fact this have a reverse effect on the prolonged symptomatology? And what they're, at the recent long COVID conference that we, I went to in Melbourne, they were suggesting that graded exercise, you've got to be careful because if you've got chronic fatigue, if you go too quickly into exercise, you can set yourself back. But using an exercise physiologist and slowly grading up your exercise is recognised as an effective treatment um, or rehabilitation for people with fatigue syndrome. That is not to get too weedy, but I know that within the community, I think there's a group of people who have lived with conditions like this for a really long time and it's been really understudied. Now, COVID's come along, it's getting a bit more attention, which is good, but probably feels like too little too late. And I know that graded exercise is one of those things that's a bit controversial. It's controversial under a, with a small group of people with chronic fatigue syndrome. But if you look at the, you know, essentially the population of people who've got ME chronic fatigue syndrome, there is good evidence that cognitive behavioural therapy, in the absence of a, of a medical therapy, what are you going to do? You're going to sit with your symptoms? In the absence of a medical therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy and graded exercise does seem to help. There was a controversial randomised trial called the PACE trial, which, which a group of people with chronic fatigue syndrome don't like. They think it was badly done. But I think we're getting to a, a middle ground here. There is no question that speeding up exercise too quickly in people with chronic fatigue does make them worse. So you've got to just do this incredibly carefully. But the other tantalising thing here is that it's real. Both conditions are real. And if you pick up a consistent marker in the immune system, then that gives you an edge or a clue to what medications might in fact help here. Yeah, it, it's pretty heartening to think that perhaps the research that's being done here into long COVID benefits people with long COVID, but also people with these other understudied diseases. That's right. And the there's a similar analogy. There's an analogy here with cr chronic pain syndromes, which are very different. Chronic pain syndromes, people have been told it's all in your head. Well, it's not in your head. Chronic pain is a real phenomenon. You can feel the pain. But it, it's the result of abnormal circuits in your brain firing off. So you fire off 
brain signals in your brain without it being reflected in damage in your periphery. And what they've shown is that, again, cognitive behavioral therapy, rehabilitation, adjusting your thinking doesn't get rid of the pain, but help you, helps you deal with it more effectively while researchers get on and try and find some other more permanent solution that's a bit easier to carry out. Absolutely. Well, let's turn now to something very simple and not at all difficult to understand, and that is the enduring question as to how long you're maybe secretly shedding virus after you don't have symptoms anymore, which is really important because it's something that we talked about over the last nearly four years, Norman, about the fact that when are you no longer infectious to people? Even if you might feel better, are you still potentially posing a risk to the people around you? Yeah. So this is a study from Hong Kong, um, a large study of about 22,000 people who were symptomatic, who'd had repeated PCRs. Remember PCRs? <laughs> I'm trying to put them out of my mind, honestly. PCRs had a thing called the CT value, which we used to talk about on uh, Coronacast. Let me see if I can remember what it is. I can't remember what it stands for, but basically it's the number of times you have to cycle through the system to kind of amplify the virus before you can see it. So a higher CT value meant a weaker signal from the virus. Well, or there was less virus around, so you had to um, uh, you had to amplify the virus to actually get a result. Whereas if there was a lot of virus around, you didn't have to do it very often. So a low CT. So they, they took they measured the CTs, and they followed these people through. And what they found was, if you've been vaccinated or you're younger, you're going to be shedding for a shorter period of time. And the meaning of that is, well, it's important for you yourself, but also in terms of large outbreaks of SARS-CoV-2 in the future. They might help to decide the transmission dynamics of the, of the infection and where to target your, your efforts. Oh, right. So maybe not so much for the individual level because most people are pretty well protected now. But in terms of those people who are forecasting it and trying to decide how many cases we might see in a, a given outbreak, this is one of the numbers that they can plug into their modelling systems. Yeah. And for you yourself, if you're vaccinated, it's Omicron and you haven't had much in the way of symptomatology and you're pretty mild, you're not going to be shedding virus for as long as somebody who is older and sicker. So what's this telling us about the way immune systems work? Well, I think it's probably telling you quite a lot. It, it means that if you've got um, an immune system which is fired up against the virus through vaccination um, and a young person's immune system or a younger person's immune system, you're going to get rid of the virus. It just makes sense. You're going to get rid of the virus faster. And if you're older, where your immune system is already starting to deteriorate in terms of its functionality, and you've got a more severe disease, which probably goes along with that, you're going to shed longer. It just confirms what common sense would tell you is the case. Okay, but this is useful information, maybe not for people in their individual households, but for how we understand sort of the way the virus works at a population level. Yeah, and look, and it's another reason why older people uh, need to be on antivirals and vulnerable people because... It's not so much them infecting others, it's the fact that the virus is around longer and you want to get rid of it so it's not damaging your body. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of Coronacast and we're actually going to take a little break. Norman and I are a bit tired and so we'll be back in your feed with more Coronacast in two weeks' time. See you then. We'll see you next time. 